I think the time of a side of a, a vinyl is perfect for the attention span of a human being. From the Coin Podcast Network Studios in Portland, Oregon, this is Six Questions with Emily Burris and Ian Costello. I sat on that side to record with Kelly a little bit earlier. It's different looking through the glass. I felt like I was the, um, rather than the witness, I felt like I was one of the suspects in the lineup. (laughs) See, I think of it as I'm the one behind the the two-way mirror. I picked number four. Number four looks like the criminal. (laughs) You ever had to do a lineup? No. You ever been put in a lineup? No. (laughs) Thank goodness. (laughs) I would be, I feel like I would be really bad at that i don't know I, I am better with faces than names that's for sure i would just be automatically even though i'm you know a quote-unquote actor to be one of the the not criminals that that's you know lines up the generic white guy that they put up next to another generic white guy to kind of pick them out right but i would be so nervous i'd look like the guilty person uh me too i would start <laughs> i would start thinking maybe i did do it and did i don't I do remember something? <laughs> That's like when a police officer is driving behind me. I'm like, oh, man, I'm definitely I'm, guilty of something. I, I broke the law somehow. <laughs> How you been? Um, good. Good. I can't believe Thanksgiving is next week. Next week. Like, when when did that happen? I, I don't know. It. I thought the last time I looked at a calendar, it was August, and then here we are. So. Yeah. I feel like the last time I looked at a calendar, it was like spring. And, uh, 2019. 2019. <laughs> And then every day has just been Groundhog Day. And here we are. Hey. Listening to any good music? Um, yeah, I've kind of been all over the place lately. I feel like I, I've been getting back into some some oldies but goodies. Hmm. Um, see, my thing is, okay, so I am a Spotify kid, right? I have my Spotify account. I am really, really bad at knowing who sings what songs or like who did what and it was this track from this album. None of that information sticks in my brain because I just go find a Spotify playlist from someone much more talented than me at at putting music together (laughs) and I'll just, I'll listen to a playlist and I love whatever's on it, but I don't know what it is. Do you then hear things you like and then go looking for artist and album? Occasionally. Yeah, it's just so easy to like put on a rate, like the radio channel of whatever artist on Spotify mm-hmm. and let the algorithms do the work, which I feel like I'm able to like listen to a lot of great music that way, but then I don't ever really take the time to get to know who I'm listening to. Yeah. <laughs> Somewhat similar, I go back every couple of years and just pick an pick a band. Uh-huh. Uh, and just listen to a lot of their stuff. And a lot of times it's discovering, you know, oh, I didn't know they sang the song or I didn't know this was them yep. or this sounds from, you know, uh, I'm doing that with R.E.M. right now. Um, it's good to get back into some R.E.M. Nice. I've done it recently with Talking Heads, uh, Bela Fleck, you know, just kind of listening to bands that had a lot of hits mm-hmm. that I don't remember really that that was them. Mm-hmm. It's kind of the way I first discovered the Beatles too when I was, because I didn't grow up listening to the Beatles, but you know, early college, it kind of came to me. I was like, oh, this is a Beatles song. Right. This is a Beatles song. Right. You know, so. You start realizing their influence and yes. how many things have been covered and yes. all that kind of stuff. I had Tom Petty on repeat a lot this summer 
But I've been, I don't know, I've been kind of all over the place um, dipping back into random stuff lately. I've been really into listening to just like jazz playlists while I'm making dinner (laughs) or some classical. I think that's my that's my way of like. I, I want something in the background, but I am so overloaded with just the pace of life right now that I can't even I can't even do lyrics, <laughs> just just music only. Yeah, I need I need less noise, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the wind down with everything that's going on. I got to tell you, it as I was listening to your conversation, and we'll get into that in a minute with Terry Courier. It struck me as it struck me that it's been so long since I've been in a record store. Ah. Like even way pre-pandemic, I don't think I've walked in a record store probably, Music Millennium was probably the last one I walked into, and that's probably been five or six years. Yeah. You know, there wasn't a trip to the mall when I was in high school that didn't include a a several hour swing or at least a one hour swing through like Sam Goody or Mm -hmm. whatever the- Oh, I would would hit up FYE, Four Year Entertainment, you know, That that was a popular one at the mall. I think, you know, it seems like our our music listening culture, the pendulum is starting to swing back towards uh, quality over quantity, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and a, a renewed emphasis on the quality of sound, the quality of work, connection with the artist. Um, I don't know if that's kind of some backlash from how far we went into the digital world. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you remember when, when I was growing up, um, we had these things called hit clips. Do you remember hit clips? I do not remember hit they clips. They were these tiny little microchips that you would plug into a keychain and you would press a button on the keychain and it would play 30 seconds of this garbledy in sync or Britney Spears. Oh, or, I bet the sound quality was fantastic. Oh, it was the worst. And so and it was literally like playing music out of a Tamagotchi, but it was just <laughs> these little 30 second samplers of these songs. And I remember thinking like why did we think that was so cool as a kid? I feel like we were so technology driven for so long <laughs> to get into, you know, CDs and Blu-rays and all this like stuff and then streaming started happening and I feel like now we've hit this point at which there's there's so much available everywhere all the time in all these digital formats there's this renewed um interest in kind of getting back to the source and back to the the sound and record stores I think are are really a testament to that. Um, you know, not only people's interests kind of coming back to that source, but they're also the fact that there are still record stores this day and age. It's a testament to folks like Terry Courier, mm-hmm. who have navigated a changing industry and are still, you know, fighting to swim in there with the current. It's a great. Well, first of all, Music Millennium is a great store. Mm-hmm. He's a great quirky guy fun to listen to but i think there's something to be said for record stores may be in existence partially because of his effort Mm -hmm. i think you got to give him some credit for helping record stores survive not just here but you know around the country he really worked hard at pushing the narrative of get back to the record store oh in a big way yeah he kept fighting long enough for people to rediscover it i think and, and get back to what they were missing and i hope that uh you know if if people don't know who terry courier is <laughs> they have definitely seen his work uh because outside of his influence in the realm of music and records um keep portland weird traces its roots back to Terry. Uh, he is the reason for, you know, one of the most popular bumper stickers and signs in town. Uh, he has become such uh, an integral part of Portland's music scene, 
Portland's culture and just the flavor of this city. And I had so much fun talking with him about his his roots, how he kind of first got into music. It will become very apparent, I hope, when you listen that this is absolutely a passion for him. This has been most of his life. And uh, there are many, many audiophiles, I think, who are very thankful for the work that he's done. First and foremost, Terry, I wanted to know, what is it like to have your own day named after you? Uh, it was a surprise and an honor. <laughs> um, I had got a call one day and I was in the Wallalas on vacation and I couldn't even get phone reception. So the place I'm, I was staying, I knew that there was some kind of um, message I needed to return. So I had to go into town and uh, um, make a phone call. And I, and the guy on the other end, Bart Day said, hey, um, you know, the city wants to have this day for you. Are, are you okay with August 12th? I go, <laughs> wait a minute, what's going on here? <laughs> so it was, it was quite a surprise. That is so cool. Yes, August 12th is when we celebrate Terry Courier Day. And I just think that is such a testament to uh, obviously how much you've cultivated here in Portland's music scene. And honestly, music around the country, you know, even the, the role you've played in, in fostering the appreciation of music and CDs and records, it's hard to overstate. And I, I want to get into some of that. But first, I thought we'd get to know you just a bit. So, you're a native of the Northwest, right? You, you're from Seattle originally? Yeah, I grew up in Seattle and in the middle of my junior year of high school, um, my dad took a new job down this way and we moved to Ridgefield, Washington. What first brought you into Portland then? What drew you down to the Rose City? Well, when you live in Ridgefield, there's really no activity happening <laughs> out there, so... Um, you know, being 16 years old with a car, I uh, immediately drove into Vancouver and then goes, eh, I got to go drive across the river and see what's going on down there and, uh, to the big city, which yeah. was actually a little city back then compared to what it is today. Sure, sure. That's neat. So what's kept you in Portland all these years? Working in a record store has really uh taken my life in all the direction that it went um i started in a record store at the brand new jansen beach mall in september of 72 and as soon as i graduated from high school it was a little company called dj sound city they transferred me to their flagship store in seattle and i was assistant manager up there and then five months later they they transferred me to Hawaii and I was there for a year and a couple months. Oh, nice. And then when I turned 19, uh, they sent me to Everett, Washington to manage a store. And I was there for a year. And then I ended up getting the opportunity to come back down to Portland and manage that Jansen Beach store. And uh, I bought a house in Vancouver at that time because the property tax was one third of what it was 
in Portland at the time. Mm-hmm. And so that made all the sense. That was way before we had traffic on the freeways, right. and a little bit harder to get over here. But I bought a house when I was 20. And I live in that same house today. Yeah, the commute's probably a little more of a headache these days. Yes, it is. (laughs) (laughs) But of course, uh, most people know you from your time here at Music Millennium. So tell me how you got started at that store and then how you uh, how you came to take the helm. Well, my my first visit to Music Millennium was about three weeks after I started working at that Jansen Beach store. Okay, And uh, I didn't grow up listening to the radio and I didn't grow up with buying records. I knew very little about recorded music. Um, when I was 16, I got a, a motorcycle. Uh, not that I knew how to ride a motorcycle, but I decided I'm going to get a motorcycle. And about nine months later, I decided that in the rain, snow, and sleet in the <laughs> Northwest, this was a bad idea. Uh-huh. So I got a car, and the car had a radio in it, and I started tuning into K-Van radio, which was a, a a daytimer station, went on the air when the sun came up, went off the air when the sun went down. Yeah. Um, and a lot of famous disc jockeys from our city started their job there. People like Bob Anchetta and Iris Harrison and Gloria Johnson. And, uh, and I also listened to Kissin' Radio back then, too. And between those two stations, once I got that car, about three months later, I decided to buy a ticket to my first concert, which was Leon Russell and the Shelter People at the Memorial Coliseum. And two weeks after that, I applied for a job in a record store. So three weeks after I started working in their record store, this girl that I knew that worked in the store says, I got a surprise for you tonight. And she took me to Music Millennium. And it was like, oh, my word, they have all the product that we have in our store. But they have all this import product, too. Mm. And I was like, totally fascinated with this store. Yeah. I used to come over here like three nights a week, maybe four. Yeah. And because our store closed at nine and they closed at 10. I'd read album covers back to back. And uh, that was my education to catch up on the music that I didn't know. Okay. So fast forward to 1984, um, DJ Sound City sold themselves to another company. And I went to work for them for about five months and decided that that wasn't the place for me to work. And I got a phone call from a guy from RCA Records in Seattle. And he says, hey, you know, Don McLeod. And I said, from Music Millennium? He goes, yeah. And Don had been out of it from, he sold the company in 1979, but he decided to come back in 84 and take over the company because it was going to file bankruptcy. And um, I went to work for him at that time. We spent the next three years paying off a half a million dollars in debt Wow! and bringing the company forward. And I mean, you look back at, at Music Millennium's time here over, gosh, more than 50 years now. There have definitely been some some close calls, I would say, some years where things have probably been a little stressful for you. 
Yeah, I mean, it's been a roller coaster ride for sure. Yeah. Um, one of the big things that really took uh, a toll on record retail in general across the country was uh, digital downloading and Napster. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, uh, a bunch of people started downloading music. Some of them paid for it, um, but it was easy to get music for free at that time. Right. And especially the younger generation in the 2000s uh, gravitated towards free music. Uh, of course, if we get free music, we can use our money for other fun things. So uh, um, in the year 2000, there was like 7,500 record stores in America. And by 2007, there was 1,800 of us left. It's, it is it is crazy to look at uh, how how tough things got there, especially yeah in the early early 2000s. But I think that what's really been interesting is the comeback that that we've seen vinyl make in the last couple of decades. I, I remember I had just gotten out of school. I went to college at University of Florida. So I was I was in Gainesville, Florida. I had just graduated. I was in my first reporting job. And I went and did a story. I was like, hey, I, I keep noticing more and more of my friends are buying record players. You know, all these 20-somethings are getting their first record player and getting into that. I think we should do a story on this. And so I remember going to a local shop and learning all about vinyl. And they were telling me that in the last few years, yeah, all of a sudden we we cannot keep the stuff on the shelves. I mean, what do, what do you think has fueled that kind of resurgence? I don't think anyone would have seen that coming back in 2007. Well, in 2007, uh, there were three coalitions out there in the independent uh, retail community. Mm -hmm. I, I started the original one, which was called the Coalition of Independent Record Stores. And we started that in, uh, I guess it's been 25 years ago. We got about 70 stores from around the country that were in non-competitive markets. Mm -hmm. And the whole idea of this coalition was that if you weren't in competitive markets with the people in this group, you might share information that can make each one of these stores a little bit better. And uh, um, it turned out to be a good idea, but a lot of stores wanted to be in our group. And uh, we could only manage X amount of stores yeah. and be able to make sure that everybody was doing everything in this group because we went to the industry and we talked to them about marketing programs. Uh, a lot of these stores had records that they liked to champion. And it turns out a lot of independent stores have a lot of like kind of artists. Mm -hmm. And so we started working records together. Now, two other coalitions sprouted up after that because we could only have so many stores and in 2007 uh the three coalitions got together and started what is known as record store day and uh the first record store day was in spring of 2008 and if you look on a graph the increase in vinyl sales 
start right there, hmm. just taking an increase year by year by year. What we did was we went to the the industry and said, hey, would you give us some compelling content to sell on a particular day that um, would give us something unique to sell to our customers? And, you know, the big box retailers, the, the, the Amazons of the world, none of them cared about vinyl at that time. But throughout the time that vinyl had gone away, most of these independent stores had kept the used section, brought in the once in a while uh, releases that would come out. Yeah. Um, especially from indie labels, not much from the major labels. And so we all still loved vinyl. And we took the opportunity that day to tell the world that, hey, there's still 1,800 record stores left in the United States because the media at that point had really painted a picture that record stores were going away. Um, and in many marketplaces, they were gone. Yeah. Uh, we wanted to paint a picture. Hey, there's still 1,800 of us out here and we do sell records. And that first record store day, we got about 50 releases and it was very surprisingly successful. Now, record store day is up to having like over 400 releases. Wow. Um, it's It's been curtailed the last couple of years into one day and broken down into two or three days due to COVID. Sure, sure. Because um, a lot of us stores had limitations on how many people could come into our stores. Yeah. And in 2020, some of those stores weren't even able to be open in their mm -hmm. marketplace. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Pandemic's been another, you know, uh, blow to, I mean, all kinds of retailers, but I, I look at record stores, you know, you've, you've fought through several generations now of, of changing technologies and new audio and, and new things coming along. It's interesting with vinyl, you've got, you know, older generations who grew up on vinyl, who probably are having fun rediscovering it now in this resurgence. And then you've got younger generations who are kind of discovering it for the first time. Describe for me the first time someone actually gets to experience a vinyl record and kind of the light bulb goes on for them. What is it about vinyl that you think really just gets people? You know, I, I think we have to thank digital downloading for, for a lot of that because uh, digital music uh, was limited on, on the quality of sound. Hmm. When you're a young person and you hear a, a vinyl record for the first time and you go, oh, wow, that sounds really, really good um, compared to that digital download that you heard, uh, it's easy to get hooked. Um, but the vinyl experience is, is a great thing. Um, I see groups of uh, teenage kids in the store and, you know, they'll, they'll buy three or four records between them and they'll go over to one of their houses and they'll sit in the, in a room in front of a stereo, you know, they open up the record, they take it, put it on the stereo, they treat it like art. 
they mm -hmm. treat it very special because they know that scratches and stuff mm -hmm. will infuriate the sound. And I think the time of a side of a, a vinyl is perfect for the attention span of a human being. <laughs> it's 20 minutes or less. They put it on, they hear a side, they may turn it over and listen to that next side, or they may go on to something else and listen to a side of another record. Mm -hmm. But they are one with the music. When we got to CDs, and CDs could put up to 75 minutes of music on them, um, people were sitting in their living room um, with a small little CD book trying to read the type and putting it to the side because it was too small to read. Sure, yeah. Um, where on a vinyl record, you know, you can sit with it in your lap while you're listening to the album. You can read all the liner notes. You can see who the engineer was, who the producer was, any of the guest artists that are on there. And you really are interfacing with your music uh, with the vinyl record. But with that CD, you know, you might get to that 20 minute mark and go, uh, I think I'm going to go to the kitchen and get something to drink or, you know, at the 35 minute mark, uh, I better go to the restroom. So you're, you lose that interaction with mm -hmm. the music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Or you start to just skip around like one or two of your favorite tracks and then that's it with CDs. Yeah. It's just not, yeah, it's not the same. It's not the same. Aside from music, I mean, Music Millennium is such a fixture in Portland, but I think the other thing that, you know, a lot of people know you from, whether they know it or not, is uh, Keep Portland Weird. So tell me about how that first, you know, came to be and and why you think it's become such a motto for the city. Well, around 1990, I was trying to come up with a program and i was actually going to spend the money to promote other independent retailers in town uh, my idea was to put a small ad in the newspaper that just championed a really cool local business and i kept coming up with this thing in my brain that said keep portland unique but it didn't ring a bell it just just didn't ring right. And I have a friend who has a record store in Austin, Texas. His name's John Koontz, and his record store is Waterloo Records, and it's known around the world. And he told me one day that somebody had come up with a slogan in Austin that said, keep Austin weird. And it was like, oh, my word, that is so great. <laughs> That's exactly what I've been trying to come up with. That has the ring to it. And I talk to John every week. And every week I'd ask him, what's going on with that Keep Austin weird slogan? And he would tell me. And one day he goes, you know, you seem to be so interested in it. Why don't you do it up there? <laughs> and I just go, why not? So... <laughs> I made 500 bumper stickers that said, keep Portland weird. And then I made 500 bumper stickers that said, keep Portland weird, support local business. And those bumper stickers 
I sent out to different local businesses telling them what I was doing. The other bumper sticker, I just organically put out there. Uh, I actually is that a nice way of saying you stuck it on stuff all over town? (laughs) (laughs) I actually ran the sticker in a newspaper two different times, just the sticker. I didn't, there was no connection to Music Millennium. It was just put the sticker in there. And I can remember I had one on the back of my car and this guy from a radio station came by and goes, oh, there's that sticker that the Willamette Week came up with. Because Willamette Week had that ad in, in their paper. But it wasn't it wasn't for many years that really it was connected to Music Millennium. But in the beginning, that's the only place you could get the sticker. Now you can get it at places like Powell's Books and Made in Oregon. It's it's evolved, uh, you know, obviously from these bumper stickers into Weird Portland United. You know, you have joined forces with a lot of very notable Portlanders, uh, weird Portlanders, and, uh, you know, all in this effort of, of promoting and fostering local talent and local business. And what made you want to reach out and, and try to collaborate and support other independent uh, businesses in that way? Oh, definitely so. The, the Una Piper and his project over there has been a really great addition mm-hmm. to what we got going on in Portland. And you know, he kind of personifies what the Keep Portland Weird uh, slogan is all about. It's keeping Portland unique. So even though we appropriated it from Austin, which city do you think has better lived up to that slogan? That's become a debate. They've had had debates in in Austin and they've had debates in Portland. Yeah. Um, I, I think Portland's a little more on the weird side. Than, than Austin, right. but it, you know, both cities have a lot of that unique character to them. So um, I wouldn't want to pick the winner out of those two. <laughs> it's a very, it's a political answer. I put you in the hot seat, but that's, that's fair. <laughs> I, I might, I might be biased, but I, I think we, I think we live up to it. I think we take the title. <laughs> it's a, it's just such a fun, it's a fun Thing in the city that I think is so celebrated. And uh, I, I hope that it continues to be just a, a fixture in culture here, much like Music Millennium, uh, just going into the future. I mean, when you look at the future of, of the store and, and the industry, what do you think is next? What's what's next for Music Millennium? I, I would imagine you're not going to be the one in charge forever and ever. Do you have a do you have a roadmap? Uh, eventually, I won't be on this earth. So <laughs> eventually, somebody else will have to take it over. And, you know, I I, I hope that to run into that very passionate person like I was when I, when I was 17 years old um, that wants to take Music Millennium into the future. And I'm, I'm hoping the vinyl craze is something that's here to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember sitting down in the mid '80s and having conversations with a friend, going, "I'm I'm worried vinyl is going to go away really soon." And he would sit there and go, "No, it can't go away. There's 2.3 and 
turntables per household. There's this many records in every household. And I go, I think the record industry is going to force it out. And that's what happened. Uh, there was a lot of chain retailers, uh, a lot of record stores and shopping centers, and they only had X amount of space. And they were carrying cassettes and vinyl. And the record industry was trying to get them to buy CDs. And they go, we don't have room for three formats in our store. And they pretty much told these stores, CDs are here to stay. Vinyl is going away. Mm. So at that time, these stores could return product. So they returned all their vinyl. And then you saw this big decrease in vinyl sales in the United States. And the next thing you know, the record industry just kind of pushed it out the door. So what's the breakdown these days for your store? How much of your sales are vinyl? How much are CDs? What else is kind of, what else is selling right now? Uh, we're, we're definitely selling more vinyl than CDs these yeah. days, but CDs are, are still alive in our store. Uh, the industry's trying to push those out the door these days, mm -hmm. but it is, it is a good format. I mean, uh, the way I look at it, the sound quality of vinyl is the ultimate sound experience. And so if vinyl is 12 inches of sound, CDs are about 10 inches of sound, digital downloads are about one inch of sound. Hmm. So, um, and, and CDs are, are still, you know, they're, they're a convenient format of music for people to collect. They are a little easier to carry around in the car than a, they than are, a, than a record right? player. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, car manufacturers aren't putting CD players in new cars. So, yeah. you know, that, that makes it a little tougher for the CD format too. I know you guys became really well known for a lot of live performances and stuff. I'm, I'm sure COVID has obviously, you know, changed things for the last couple of years, but do you think that's still going to continue to be a fixture at Music Millennium? Oh, definitely so. Um, the, the whole live music experience of Music Millennium started in 1989. I was trying to come up with an idea to celebrate our 20th anniversary. And uh, I turned to the then majority owner, Don McLeod, and I said, why don't we do 20 straight days of live music in the store? And he goes, well, where are you going to do it? And I pointed upstairs in the mezzanine and he looked up and he goes, yeah, that could work. So we went to look into renting a sound system and ended up buying one instead because it was going to be just as economical to buy one instead of renting it for all those days. And we ended up doing 40 straight days of live music with all the local artists that I reached out to. And at the time we said, well, maybe once in a while we'll get a national artist to play in here. Well, I got really motivated and started calling artist management and record labels and going, hey, how would you like to have your artists play in the store when they come through town? And, you know, a lot of people said, what? And some of them said, yes. And I just kept knocking on doors. And I mean, that first year we started doing uh, the live music in the store, we had Randy Newman 
in here doing his only ever in-store performance and he sang happy birthday to music millennium oh that's so cool uh, we had Soundgarden here that year uh on the record release day of their louder than love album um over the years we've been really lucky to have people like weezer everclear um steve earl bonnie Raitt's been at the store um it's it's been amazing what's really great is it's a place where a lot of local artists get a chance to expose their music mm -hmm. and uh we've seen some of those local artists go from just being the small local artist to being quite famous like uh portugal the man uh everclear elliot smith yeah uh, it's it's been really rewarding to see the success of some of these artists how do you keep your finger on the pulse of kind of who's up and coming and what's coming out of portland i mean there, there's a lot to keep track of i come to work every day because of the music that's what drives me to keep doing this and i try to listen to as many things as i can it's almost impossible to keep up with anymore because there is so much music in the world and you know the internet has given people the opportunity to create and expose their music um mm -hmm. you know it's it's not like the days where it cost a whole bunch of money to get in a studio make a project and go through all of that you know people right. people can make music and very inexpensively get it exposed to people out there so there's a lot of music to hear yeah a couple thousand bucks you can put something together on your laptop and get it on soundcloud and if you go viral, th there you go. It, it's it's definitely different than the like having to go and get a record deal and some of the avenues that people used to have to take. Yeah. yeah. And we, we're doing live music again. We're not doing as much as we've done. And we're, we're keeping it uh, limited to how many people can come in the store uh, during a performance because we, we do want people to be socially distanced and yeah. safe. And, you know, we, we definitely don't want to cause any problems during the, the COVID era here. Right, right. Well, it's, I'm glad that it's coming back because I think that's something that a lot of people look forward to and, and something that I think so many people are appreciating more now after not having live music for a, a year, a year and a half. You know, the first time I got to go back to a live performance this summer was just like I was out at Edgefield uh, for a concert and it just, I I forgot how much I missed getting to see that live performance, that connection that you, you know, it, there's, there's just, there's no replacement for it. Oh, no, there isn't. I mean, live music is one of the greatest experience a human being can have. We're gonna take a quick break. And when we come back, Terry's feud with Garth Brooks, how his beef with the country music legend helped fuel a record resurgence.
Hi, this is Jeff Giannola from Coin6 News, and I'd like to invite you to watch Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW, a full hour of the stories that are important to you and your family. See why more people are switching to Coin6 News at 10 on Portland CW. Cannabis. Cannabis. Less than 10 years ago, it was trafficked in the shadows. Today, you get a receipt with your purchase. I'm Travis Box. Each episode, I'll sit down one-on-one with the major players in the Oregon cannabis industry. The activists. The medical professionals. The legislators. The economists. The regulators. Where does this budding billion-dollar industry go from here? It's the Mainstream Weedia Podcast. Coming this November. To the Coin Podcast Network. The Coin 6 Weather Team has the most accurate forecast in town. Certified by Weather Rate. Coin 6 Weather. Watching out for you. So I have to ask you about your feud with Garth Brooks. It has... It has become, I think, part of the uh, part of the legend of Terry. Uh, for anyone who's unfamiliar, can you just walk us through this this beef with Garth and and how it got started? Well, in January nineteen ninety three, uh, four out of the six major record distributors came up with policies that stated if you sold ucds in your store they weren't going to support you with advertising or marketing money and i go well that's not fair and so i typed up a three-page letter and mailed it to over a hundred presidents and vice presidents of record labels and record distributors as well as sent it to the different trade publications in our industry Um, The trade publications read the letter and started writing about it. I didn't hear a whole lot back from the labels and distributors. Uh, I did get a couple of phone calls. Um, Most people didn't want to comment on it. But it began this little feud between Perry and the record industry. Mm -hmm. And this went on all the way into June. And... I could see at that particular point in time that me against the record industry wasn't necessarily going to solve this problem. And then one day, this guy, Mark Cope from the Album Network magazine, uh, called me up and said, hey, Garth Brooks just had a press conference and he said he didn't want his new album sold in stores that sold UCDs. So in the next 10 minutes, We had two store locations at that time. We took all the product off the shelf by Garth Brooks and boxed it up and sent it back to Capitol Records for a return. Uh, The next day, I decided, you know, I'm going to invite the public down to the parking lot to bring their Garth Brooks vinyl, VHS tapes, posters, and we're going to barbecue Garth Brooks product in our back parking lot. Get a barbecue Brooks. <laughs> now, this was before we were using computers and stuff for our everyday life. Yeah. I wrote a press release out again and I sent it out to all the local media and I invited people to come down to this event, which was going to, that was on a Thursday. It was going to be the following Friday. 
And I bought an ad in the paper and told everybody what the event was about and why we were doing it. And over the next week, every TV, radio, and newspaper media in town had either come by or called to find out exactly what we were doing and trying to get a better understanding on that. And we did the event in the parking lot. I had a barbecue hat, barbecue apron. (laughs) I was barbecuing VHS tapes with barbecue sauce and putting them on a hoagie. Um, You know, barbecuing CDs and put them on a hamburger bun with barbecue sauce. And it seemed to grab a lot of attention. Mm -hmm. And that night I did a talk show in Seattle on the radio about it. And one of my staff members, Fred Sigmuller, said, hey, you're getting really popular. I'm going to have to be your manager. I go, (laughs) no, you're going to go on the road with me. And he goes, what do you mean? I go, we're going to take this on tour. So we set up a tour to nine record stores between Bellingham, Washington and San Diego along I-5. And we set up these barbecues and we got the stores to try to get their local markets involved in the whole process. Some of them had uh, street fairs with bands playing. One store got the country radio stations and the rock radio stations talking on air together and deciding why are these guys doing this and and how come this is happening then we sent out a press release to all the national media that we could i mean the la times the new york times cnn the country music channel on tv people magazine and uh we went and we did this barbecue And we made up tour T-shirts that had (laughs) Bernie Garth Brooks CD on the front, had all the dates of the tour on the back of the shirt. (laughs) Uh, We made magnetic signs for the band that said barbecue for retail freedom. We got our chef hat and our barbecue for retail freedom aprons. Mm -hmm. And we did these down the road and they were really quite successful. We figured if we took it to the people, that the people would have a better understanding of what we were doing. And uh, when we were in Oakland, we were in Berkeley, actually. Um, We were on the five o'clock news and me and Fred decided to go to the San Francisco Giants baseball game that night. And we wore our aprons and our barbecue hats. And there were so many people in the baseball stadium that had seen us on the news at five o'clock that night, you know, and they were hollering at us. Ah, it's, it's the barbecue guys. Oh my gosh. And within about three or four weeks after we got done with the tour, all the major labels rescinded their policies and everything went back to normal. We even put Garth Brooks product back in our store. Oh. Then about three or four weeks later, Garth was interviewed and they asked him about the barbecue. And he said, you know, I believe people should stand up for what they believe in. But those guys from Portland were selling my product 
all during the barbecue. And that seemed hypocritical. Well, we weren't selling his product. Right. At that point, I pulled the product back out of the store again, <laughs> wrote little divider cards in the bin that goes, we no longer sell Garth Brooks product. And this is why. Have you and Garth ever buried the hatchet? Has there has there ever been a continuation or a resolution of this feud? No, there there really hasn't. And, you know, if the opportunity existed, I would be open to have conversations with him. Um, you know. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's we we've seen a lot happen in the last couple of years. 2020 saw a lot of things we never thought would happen. Maybe maybe we'll see uh, an end <laughs> to, to the to the Garth Brooks and the guys from Portland. <laughs> could, could make up. Now, do you do you still not sell Garth Brooks product in Yeah, we still don't. You know, we mm-hmm. haven't staff members downstairs that will buy like a whole CD collection or an, a whole vinyl collection from uh-huh. somebody. If there's any Garth Brooks product in there, they know it has to go in the trash. Oh man, they sort it <laughs> out. That's that's too funny. Oh, I just I think that's that's such a great story. But it, I mean, obviously, it, it got results. I mean, how how important was that to independent record stores uh, and and still is to be able to sell used product? Well, out of that whole thing is where the idea came up to me to start this coalition of independent retail stores Mm -hmm. because what i found out talking to all these stores that were part of the barbecue was that we all had common problems common interests and if we work together maybe we could make a difference so when we started this coalition uh, two years later, we actually became the darlings of the record industry at that time because the industry really put all their effort into their top 10, 12 accounts, and they didn't really care about the independent stores so much. Mm-hmm. And it kind of put the independent stores on the map, and it kind of turned us into uh, a little chain of stores with a, with each of us keep, keeping our own unique flavor. Yeah, it gives you some collective power for sure. Well, I know I didn't realize, you know, when you compare independent record stores to big box stores, something like a Best Buy or a Radio Shack, back when that was, you know, when when all these different stores were a thing, FYE and all that stuff, some of the like CDs or certain materials would just kind of be used more as a promotional device, right? Like they would sell them below cost to get people in the door to try and spend money on other things. That was another reason in starting the coalition too, because at that time, uh, a lot of big box retailers were using music as a loss leader to get people into their store. Yeah, And in some marketplaces, that was causing independent stores to go out of business. You know, it was hard for them to compete. You know, people would come in their store and see a CD for $15.99 and think that the store was gouging them because some store across town that was a big box was selling it for $9.99. Yeah. What they didn't know is that that store selling it for $15.99 was paying way over $10 to get it into their store. Yeah. Yeah. 
It's interesting. The 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 behind the scenes tactics, you know, that the consumer isn't always aware of. Well, before I let you go, I have a couple quick questions for you. You already answered one of them. I was going to ask you if you remember the first concert you ever went to and and you you had that one ready to go. What what stood out to you about your first ever concert? That concert was a revelation to me. I mean, a lot of things came out of that concert. The opening act was a band out of Texas called Nitzinger. There was a woman playing drums in that band. And I thought she was pretty amazing. And it inspired me to buy a drum set um, (laughs) within the next two weeks. I made the mistake of trying to learn how to play drums to the Who. And Keith Moon, I found out later, was nobody could play like Keith Moon. I was going to say, that's a tough one to start out with. (laughs) And so, you know, after about a month, I go, I'm not going to play drums anymore. And, uh, but then Leon Russell and the shelter people, Leon Russell, um, it was, it was almost like a religious experience to me. I mean, I'm, I'm at this show. I, I'd never seen anything quite like this before. And here was this guy that, you know, was commanding presence, playing piano, jumping up on top of his piano, playing guitar, it was like a 12-piece band, too, with backup singers and horn players and stuff. And I go, this is wild. And immediately, I started going to record stores. And, you know, I go, I got to get record by this Leon Russell guy. And uh, two weeks later, I applied for a job in a record store. Um I was supposed to go to college on music scholarships. I played music, but I didn't listen to recorded music. Okay. I practiced and learned theory and did all this stuff almost all my waking hours in a daytime. I mean, it was pretty much predestined that I was going to go to college on music scholarships. What did you play? Uh, I played clarinet was my main instrument but i was learning other wind instruments like oboe bassoon and sax yeah and i can remember my school counselor bringing me in in january 73 going you're not going to get these scholarships if you don't get this paperwork filled out and i go well i'm 17 years old making 225 an hour and now i'm an assistant manager in a record store it doesn't get any better than this. No. I played flute in high school. That was, I, oh, was in, right. I was in marching band, played flute. And uh, I remember my mom telling me, like, you could maybe if you wanted to go be on stage, you know, you could be the next Jethro Tull. And I was like, Mom, I'm not cool enough to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that's really neat. Do you remember the first uh, the first CD and the first record you ever bought? I actually bought a couple of records. Before I worked in a record store, I did own like, you know, eight to 10 records. The first two records I bought on my own were by Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. Yeah. One was called We're Only In It for the Money. And the other one was Cruising with Ruben in the Jets. My first CD, whoo, I was kicking and screaming when the when CDs came out. <laughs> um, I I think I owned about 50 CDs before I actually owned a CD player at home. Oh, my gosh. I did have one in the office, of course, 
but uh, I loved vinyl so much that I just didn't want to go into this new format. Yeah, personally, it's so. understandable. What's a? This is probably a tough one. Um, I don't. I hope I'm not asking you to pick your favorite child, but do you have a, a most cherished record? most favorite record that you own they are all my kids yeah it is hard to pick um i do have a couple of interesting pieces at home this is a kind of a cool story i went to a convention in san diego and i had booked my trip and i found out the day i was coming back that paul mccartney was going to have a release party at the House of Blues in LA. And it was weeks before the convention. So I called my capital person, Donna Ross, and I said, is there any way you can get me into this event? And she goes, yes, you can go. So I changed my airfare. I got a train ticket from San Diego to get up to LA. And I went to this event. I had thought that Paul McCartney was going to play at this event, <laughs> but he was just going to play his record at this event. And it was full of people. I mean, there was famous people in the audience like the Everly Brothers and Rod Stewart. Yeah. And I had brought introducing the Beatles on vinyl. And I saw my capital person and she saw my record and she goes, I don't think anything's going to happen tonight. But stay close to me in case an opportunity arises. All of a sudden, one time in the evening, she grabs my arm. She takes me to the stairway. She pushes me up the stairway. And I can, I can see that she's not going up the stairway. And I go, aren't you coming? She goes, no, just go up the stairway. And I got into this little room with about 15 other people. And we were told them to make a circle. And that Paul McCartney would come in and get in the circle and say hello to each of us. Oh, wow. So he got to me and I talked to him for a minute or so. And I go, hey, would you mind signing this record? And he goes, I'm not supposed to sign any records. And I go, but you're Paul McCartney. You can do whatever you want to do. <laughs> and he laughed. And he took my Sharpie and he signed the record. That's so cool. So that's, that's a good one. I, I think that that earns the title for sure. <laughs> that is, that is really neat. Uh, so I would imagine when you're not at work, uh, it, listening to music, probably one of your big hobbies, but I'm curious, what else do you do when you're not at the store? Uh, listening to music has been a big hobby of mine yeah. my entire life. Do you still play uh, anything? What's that? Do you still play any instruments or play no, music? No. I gave up. It was interesting <laughs> in the very beginning, I would bring records home and I would take out my clarinet and play along with the record. Yeah. I, I did give up on that. Um, one of my greatest things in life is going out and seeing live music. And I can't tell you how many thousands and thousands of shows I've seen over the years, but I still look forward to going out to live shows. Um, this Sunday, I'm going to go see Los Lobos at the Aladdin Theater. Nice. And I can't wait. Very cool. 
On a completely unrelated note, uh, you have one of the more recognizable quaffs of hair in Portland. Uh, as someone who recently started wearing their hair naturally curly, I'm just curious. I, I haven't been through a winter here yet with curls. Do you have any advice for me to, to take care of the curls? Because yours are very recognizable. <laughs> no, your hair will frizz out every once in a while when you get in the rain and yeah. snow and stuff here. You're just going to have to live with it. <laughs> well, you've made it cool. So if there's any city that I could deal with it in, it's Portland. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Terry, thank you so much for your time today. It was great to talk with you. Is there anything else that I that I didn't ask that you want to mention before we go? No, great to talk with you too. Well, thanks again. I, I hope that uh, for a long, long time, people are going to get to be coming into Music Millennium and, and discovering their first vinyl or finding a new artist and just keeping keeping the music going in Portland because it's a great part of what makes this city weird. I'll say weird instead of unique. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks, Terry. You take care. Have a good one. You- Okay, so Ian, do you remember the first concert you ever went to? Yes. Is it? Uh, Would you like to tell me about the first concert you ever went to? Sure. <laughs> I guess there's it's there's categories. There's the first concert I remember going to. Okay. And then the first concert that I bought tickets for uh-huh. myself to. Yes. The first concert I remember going to was an experience called Up with People. Are you familiar? I am not. Um, late seventies, early eighties, I think I was five or six when we went to this up with people concert, they were kind of just a newer age, feel good, sing along, make everybody in the audience feel like they were part of something. I think they were geared toward, for the most part, I think they were geared toward younger kids. I don't want to say like, um, like the Teletubbies or what's the, Oh, the Wiggles. Yes. Um, (laughs) Because they were they were a band and they they played on a stage and they played in decent sized stadiums, but that's the first concert I remember. How, how going old were to. you? Five or six. Oh, okay. Um, and I had speaking of records, but not vinyl. I had one of the plastic records, <laughs> um, on my tiny little Fisher Price uh, record player nice. that I listened to their concert on. Uh huh. So that was that was the first concert I remember going to. That's fun. I got dragged to a good amount of concerts by my parents. Yeah? When I was a little kid, yeah. That's cool. I don't remember. Yeah, I uh, I remember going to a Three Dog Night concert with my parents when I was younger. <laughs> that's and that's different than Up With People. It definitely <laughs> is. And I, I remember not really paying attention to the show. I, it was like an outdoor concert, and I played around in the grass with my cousins. But that's one of my first concert memories. I was never a big concert goer growing up. We did, uh, I mean, we did like orchestra. You know, I was in band Mm -hmm. and orchestra, so a lot of symphonic concerts. Um, But then a lot of like musical theater and plays and stuff. I I think the first concert that I had any decision in going to was actually one of my my best friend in high school. Um, We went to Taylor Swift for her birthday. And she, for Taylor Swift's birthday or your friend's for birthday? For my friend's birthday. Okay. Yes. Uh, that was her birthday present was to go to Taylor Swift at, at a House of Blues in Orlando. And that was back when, I think it was after like her first album, maybe. She was still relatively new. That was in her like curly hair, sparkly guitar days. Uh, and so that was my first real like live music 
performance experience and it was fun. It made me, I wasn't a huge Taylor Swift fan at the time. My friend was obsessed, so I was just going with her. But it made me a bigger fan of of her to get to see, you know, to get to see the artist perform live. I think it gives you a totally different appreciation for the music. It does. And I took my wife to see Taylor Swift, um, I don't know, five, seven or eight years ago now, whenever the 1989 tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and we saw at uh, CenturyLink in Seattle. I ponied up the bucks for really good seats. I wasn't a huge Taylor Swift fan headed into it. I left that concert a huge Taylor Swift fan. Yeah. That, that was a great show. It is a, I know there's some, some people who would differentiate between pop and rock, but when you put on a stadium show and you bring props and and that kind of show, huge production, you might be a pop singer, but you're a rock show. And that was that was a rock concert, and it was fun. It's it's a concert I'll never forget. I've got kind of the list of my favorite concerts, and I've always kind of had my my favorite concert list. That's up there. Seeing that show, that 1989 tour was really fun. Mm-hmm. Do you have your favorite concert? Favorite concert? Um, probably probably the Avett Brothers. Ooh. Yeah. That, that Where? Was, I went and saw them also in Orlando. Uh, I haven't been to too many shows out here because I was only here for about a, a year. Before everything shut yeah, down. Yeah. The last, the last show I went to, I saw Mumford & Sons at the Moda Center. Moda Center. Mm-hmm. And Good that show. was It was a great show. Uh, that was right before, you know, all the pandemic stuff really kicked in. So, but yeah, Avett Brothers, Mumford & Sons also in there too. Just, just to be able to, you, you realize how talented some of these musicians are, these performers getting to see them just kind of riff off each other, just do different things live. It's, it's really interesting, um, I think. It just gives you a different appreciation for the music. And, and to me, that's what I think you just you connect differently. And there is something about, I will say, there is something about listening to music on a record that I think captures a little more of that energy a little more of that essence maybe mm-hmm. it's just the, you know the sound quality it is it's it's better. better yes um that you don't get from from digital stuff and so i i'm i'm always reminded a little bit of that when i hear a record you know kind of of what it's like to see someone live the word i would use and i'm probably stealing it from somebody is richer mm-hmm. i really liked terry's explanation that working backwards the digital is one inch of music mm-hmm. the cd's 10 inches of music and vinyls, 12 inches of music. Mm-hmm. And when you think about it that way, oh, there's just a lot of depth yeah. that you don't get that won't come through your speakers no matter how good a stereo system you have if it's a download. Yeah, yeah, it's different. And I just think it's like, thank thank goodness for people like Terry, you know, who care enough to really try and, and keep this alive and keep it out there. And I, I think that, I hope that Music Millennium has cemented itself enough as a, as a Portland icon, you know, that it will be around for, for many, many, many more years to come. And it's uh, it's interesting to think of, of who's going to take it over from Terry eventually. I'm, I'm sure he will make sure that it's in good hands. What music are you going to listen to with Thanksgiving? Mm, I don't know. Um, I'm doing a, a Friendsgiving this year and getting together with some of the people who are way better about you know finding music and the people that the people that make some of the playlists that i listen to so i will probably let them dj it's not a bad idea (laughs) how about you um stuff from the peanuts there you go Uh, a little what's his name charles charles schultz schultz and schrader playing the piano Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. can't go wrong with that no it, it it puts me in the in the fall kind of mood 
Well, enjoy your Thanksgiving, Ian. Hope everyone out there has a happy Thanksgiving. Be safe. Enjoy friends and family. And we'll see you back in December. Talk to you in a few weeks. The Coin Podcast Network is your home for on-demand coverage of local news, sports, weather, and entertainment you won't find anywhere else. You can always find us on coin.com slash podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.